Yeah, I, it's just my hope that this will inspire people to kind of find their outlet. I mean, art is an outlet for me to deal with all the craziness that goes on in the world. And I think if you can, you know, take 15 minutes a day or something and color one of the pages in the back of the sister or work on your own, you know, first, or create your own art, it's just going to be healing in a way. Um, to anybody who does it. This is Charisma Connection on the Charisma Podcast Network. I'm Missy Montgomery, and today I'm joined over the phone with Valerie Wieners, who is an artist and Bible journaling pioneer. How are you doing today, Valerie? I'm doing really well. How are you? I'm doing great, and I'm really excited to talk about this book that you have out. Um, super crafty, super cute. I think it's going to be fun for uh, all ages. And uh, before we get started into that, I want to talk a little bit about your testimony, because when I was presented this book uh, to talk with you today, I was just really blown away by your story. And I know our listeners can really gain some a lot of insight to that. So why don't you go ahead and just kind of tell us a little bit about your testimony? Okay, so um, I grew up in Amarillo, Texas, and um, I had an alcoholic father, and my mom worked, she worked all the time, and so, you know, we would get off the bus, go home, and my dad would already be drinking, so that's the majority of what my childhood was. Um, It was super dysfunctional, and that really led me to overeat just because, you know, I couldn't control anything. Right. And so started overeating. I became really overweight, and in high school, um, I went to a new school. It was really big, and, you know, people are mean. High schoolers are mean, and I got made fun of that. And so I went on a quote-unquote diet, which was really just not eating anything, um, in my sophomore year and ended up losing like a hundred pounds. And so at that point I was anorexic. We, um, sorry, I always get really shaky when I say this. No problem. We, uh, I had to go to the nurse, you know, every week, obviously everybody knew something was wrong with me. Had to go to the nurse every week was weighing in, um, and was going to the hospital as well. And they told me that, you know, you've got to eat or you're going to die because this isn't healthy. I was passing out at school. I was losing my hair. Um, So I started to eat. But then, obviously, when I started to eat, I started to gain weight because I was, you know, bones. Right. And I just couldn't handle that. In my mind, I knew that gaining weight, I had thought gaining weight was just, you know, everybody's going to reject me. They're going to make fun of me again. And I couldn't handle it. So that's when I really started to switch over from anorexia and went more into being bulimic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, every meal it was like, what am I going to do? I can't handle this. I need to throw it up. Where's the bathroom? Is the toilet going to work? It was just like constant in my head. And I don't know if you've ever been addicted to anything, but it just consumes your life. Right. And so I was really good at hiding it in high school. You know, nobody had any idea. And then when I was 18, I had told one of my friends that what was going on, and they ended up telling my mom. And whenever I knew that that had happened, 
like shame just came over me and immediately I like ran away from home. Um, it, I mean, I didn't run away from home for a long time. It was like five days or something, but mm-hmm. I just like, I couldn't do it. I knew it was wrong, but I didn't know how to get out of what I was doing. And at 18, I ended up moving out of my house. I was working at um, a restaurant here in Amarillo and I knew that wasn't healthy either because I'm a bulimic. I'm around food. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, eating it and throwing it up, stealing stuff. Um, it wasn't right, so I had to get another job. I ended up quitting that job, and I tried to work at one of those telemarketing places, mm-hmm. which was awful, um, and that didn't last long. And so then I was jobless, and I was living in an apartment. I had bills to pay. I had a car. I had a phone. Like, all of these bills were just piling up, and that time it was whenever we read newspapers it wasn't internet you don't look for jobs on the internet you just got the newspaper and there was an ad in there and it was for one of our local strip clubs and you know it said like hiring waitresses great pay whatever and so I was like I can do that you know we weren't Christians growing up I didn't see anything wrong with going to strip clubs because Mm -hmm. my dad did it um and I like, that's part of the dysfunction. I just thought it was totally normal that guys go to strip clubs when they get old enough, and that's what they do for fun. So I applied to work there. I got hired. Um, I don't know what date that was. I think it was, like, in December or something that mm-hmm. I was working there. But worked there. I made great money. Um, it was awful. I mean, I hated every bit of it, but the money was great. And so I was working there, and in March, um, a group of guys had come in, you know, groups of guys always came in, but this particular group, there was one guy in it and he, um, you know, he was super friendly, like, Hey, let's hang out. I was 20 at the time. I knew this guy was older, but also at the same time I was getting counseling and my counselor had told me that I was isolating myself and I needed to find friends. Mm -hmm. And in my dysfunctional head, you know, seeing this guy, I was like, I could be friends with him. Like, he seems like a great guy, you know, obviously, probably not the best choice. Um, So I gave him my number, and he would text me every now and then. And on St. Patrick's Day in 2008, he had called me, or I think he had texted me, said, hey, a group of friends are going out for St. Patrick's Day. Do you want to go with us? And so here I am, you know, I'm a people pleaser and thinking I'll please my counselor and I'll go out with them knowing that I'm 20. This probably isn't a great idea, but at least I won't be isolating in my house or in my apartment. So I ended up going out with them that night. Wasn't old enough. They went to a bar. Um, The bar, the first one that we went to wouldn't let me in because I was 20. Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, I mean... I was I was a good kid, and I was a good teenager. You know, I made great grades, but I'm a perfectionist, a people pleaser. Like, I, I really followed the rules. But this was one thing where it's like, I know this isn't right, and I probably shouldn't be doing it, but I did it anyway. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they made a big fuss about me not getting into that first bar, so we loaded up, and we went to an, a different one, got in. Um, and you know, the guy was like, do you want to drink? And I, you know, hadn't drank anything. 
Um, so said, sure, but I worked in a bar, so I knew, you know, different drinks and what you could order. And so told him a drink to get. He got it. He brought it back. I drank it, and, like, instantly. It was one of those things, like, I didn't know what was going on. I'm starting to black out. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm falling over in my chair. And then the next thing I know, like, we're all driving into a car to an apartment, and then I kind of wake up again. I don't know what happens, but then I wake up again, and we're going somewhere else in a car. And it's just me and this guy and two other people. Well, the, the two people in the front drop me and this guy off at a house, and he ends up raping me there. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm in and out. I know what's happening, but it's like I I can't wake up enough to right. stop it, but I know what's going on. So that that was my, you know, life moment that really defined me. Yes, I struggled with anorexia and bulimia. But this was like, this was the thing that was going to break me. So that happened that night, woke up in the morning. I was like, I need to get home. I need you to take me home. I had no idea where I was, but I had my cell phone. And I remember texting somebody and was like, you know, I don't know where I'm at. I need help. And it was a guy and he texted me back. He's like, where are you? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what to do. And so... I went out to this guy and was like, I need you to take me home. Um, This isn't right. He ended up dropping me off at my apartment. You know, I'm half naked because I don't know where my clothes are. I'm walking up my steps to my apartment, and I just, like, fall down. Like, I have got to tell my mom. So I got in my car, you know, which was probably not safe driving because I was super emotional. Um, Got to my mom. She took me to the hospital. And they did all their tests from there. The cops came. They got um, my story. And then I had described where I was because we were by a Hobby Lobby. And that's what I remember. And I remembered looking. I think I looked at, like, the street sign or something. So I knew kind of where I was when we were leaving. And I gave them enough that they found the house that we were at. But the conclusion that they came to, you know, I mean, they said, obviously, you had sexual intercourse, but they were going to go get the other people's story. And the conclusion that they came to was that, you know, I'm a 20-year-old girl hanging out with 30 to 40-year-old people in a house, and I was drinking so that I pretty much was asking for it. And once they said that, something just switched in my mind. It's like, you know, if nobody's going to believe me that this is what happened, then why am I trying to be a good kid anyway? So after that night, I was so scared of everything in life. Like, is this guy going to see me again? Now the cops know that he was there Mm -hmm. or that I had told the cops because they went to their house. Like, what if these people do see me again? At that point, you know, I'm thinking, I can't go back to my work. I can't go out in public. I don't want to see anybody. So in my apartment, Um, I had gotten somebody to get me alcohol, which, like I said, I didn't drink alcohol before this. I was a a pretty good kid. Mm -hmm. Um, So I got somebody to get me alcohol, and I just started drinking. You know, I knew it worked for my dad, and I was going to make it work for me. I was going to, you know, not have to be the good kid anymore. I was going to go down strong. So I was drinking, you know, sun up to sundown. I would drink to get me out of the house, not be scared, and it worked. Until, you know, it doesn't work, just like any addiction does. 
And so alcohol stopped working, but I was getting out. I was partying with people every night um, because at that point I didn't have a job and I had just gotten my income tax. So I didn't necessarily have to work right then. And in my mind, you know, thinking short term wasn't thinking long term at all. But the alcohol led to drugs. And then when I started doing drugs, I got into the hard stuff and started doing cocaine. Cocaine's super expensive, um, and it doesn't last very long. So I was doing things for drugs, you know, that people do for drugs. And on my the day before my 21st birthday, January 3rd, 2009, I had overdosed on cocaine, and I was with a group of guys in this house. I, I think it was a house. I don't think it was an apartment. But in this house, and I knew something was wrong. I, like, couldn't breathe. My eyes, you know, my pupils were really dilated. I was just shaking. And I said to somebody, like, you need to take me to the hospital because I think something is happening. I had done, you know, a whole week's worth of drugs in one night. So nobody was going to take me. I had to drive myself to the hospital. And I remember when I got there... I looked down at the drugs that I had left. I did those, and then I walked in because I knew that was the last oh, time that I was going to do drugs. So I walked into the hospital. I don't really remember what happened there, um, but I, you know, somehow got in a bed, and they had me hooked up to whatever they hook you up to. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't really remember that part. Um, maybe because my adrenaline was so high. I don't know. Passed out. But then I remember my parents walked in, and it was like this flood of emotion because I knew what I had done, and it was not right. And, you know, it's scary because I felt this whole time like I had so much control over what I was doing, and now I had zero control. My parents knew that I was a drug addict. They knew, you know, that all of this stuff was wrong with me. But I couldn't hide it. Like, everything was brought to light. So that it was that day, and then I went home that night, and my mom and my brother took turns watching me because I had a detox. My mom had, you know, somehow gotten me into this Christian rehab facility, which I don't, at that point I don't think I knew that I was going anywhere. I just knew that they were locking me in the house with no phone. Right. Um, and, you know, just like your typical detoxer, you want drugs and you're going to do anything to get on. And so, I mean, I was throwing stuff in my parents' house. I was, um, you know, breaking everything. I was mad. I was screaming. Well, come Friday, you know, we took the long journey in the car to Arizona and from Amarillo. That's a long ways away. It took like two days or something. Um, But we got there, my parents dropped me off, and I was so mad. I had gone, um, the place that I went to, it's called Remuda Ranch, and it deals with, like, eating disorders, drugs, alcohol. Like, they kind of try to get everything at once while you're there. So I spent uh, 45 days there. I got back sometime at the end of February. And leaving rehab You know, when you're in this bubble, everybody in the morning, you're told what you're going to eat, when you're going to go to the bathroom. People watch you go to the bathroom. You're given a schedule. Everything is so systematic, and you don't have any choices to make. And then you come back home, and you have 
all the choices to make. You know, you get a game plan together of what you're going to do here, but then the choice is yours. But this time I'm 21. I just got home out of rehab. I've got all the choices in the world. Um, I don't have a car. My car got repoed because I wasn't paying for it. I didn't have an apartment. I didn't have anything. So I was living back at home with my parents. And we had, um, we lived in the country at the time. And so it's not like I could get a job and just walk there. I mean, it was 25 miles. You can't just walk. And so somehow in there, so I was making bad choices. I was hanging out with people who were drinking. Um, I wasn't doing drugs at that point. But then in August, I had relapsed. And I remember one night I was hanging out with a group of people and I was feeling sorry for myself. You know, I didn't have a car. So I ended up calling my um, old drug dealer, told him to come get me. We went to a house and I did drugs. And that was another one of those moments where I was like, you know, this is not who I am. At that point, you know, I had went to the Christian rehab, so I prayed the prayer to let Jesus into my life. I was a quote-unquote Christian because of that. Um, But I had really learned a lot of stuff there, like who I am, I don't have to be the way that I was. Um, And so that night when I did drugs, all of that went through my mind, like, I'm not going to waste my parents' money because they had paid, you know, this huge amount to get me there. Um, I'm going to do the right thing. So my actual clean date is in August because I relapsed. But now it's been eight years. Um, It'll be nine years this August. Wow. Where it's like, you know, I don't know. It's just crazy. Well, congratulations on that. You know, that's such a powerful testimony. And to say, you know, eight years, I think that's incredible. So I'm I'm sure all of our listeners, you know, are definitely proud of that change you made. And, you know, obviously going through that, having a little bit of redemptive pain, you know, you turn your life over to Christ, and then you find your passion for art, which has always been that. And, you know, your book, The Art of Words, you kind of teach people kind of to do some Bible journaling and how to letter um, some Bible verses. So talk a little bit about what inspired you to do this art for a living. Okay, so whenever I got back home from rehab, I didn't have a job, like I said. So I had canvases laying around. I've always been artistic. I've always painted, um, but I had canvases laying around, and I just started to paint them, and I was trying to be more disciplined at learning scripture and memorizing it. So I found that when I, you know, created artwork and had those scriptures on it, I would remember them more. And so I was making those, and then I had shared some of them that I made on Facebook, and people started to want to buy them, which was crazy to me. So that's how the actual selling of my art started. Well, I mean, I'm looking at the book now, and I'm very impressed. Um, And I wish some of our listeners could see just kind of like the amazing things that you have in this book. But I'm also impressed, but I'm also a little intimidated when I look at it because I am not artistic at all. So obviously you have some pages in here where people can kind of learn. So what kind of um, maybe some inspiration or kind of uh, words of encouragement do you have for people that maybe are not artists, but they really want to learn how to do this? So the great thing about my book is for it's for anybody um, on any skill level, even those people who aren't artistic. 
It's going to take you through, you know, making the letters and then inspiring you to create your own style. But if that so intimidates you, like there's, you know, coloring pages in the back and you can color my lettering and there's different projects. So anybody can do it on any skill level. And let's talk a little bit about, um, just for a few minutes while we have left here on the show, what kind of you want people to get out of this lettering? Again, you kind of said that you did it on canvases to kind of be reminded of the word of the Lord. And do you think that's going to have the same impact for people that maybe have the same journey that you went through or maybe not, but kind of just want to do this for fun? Yeah, I. it's just my hope that this will inspire people to kind of find their outlet. I mean, mm-hmm. art is an outlet for me to deal with all the craziness that goes on in the world. And I think if you can, you know, take 15 minutes a day or something and color one of the pages in the back that the scripture or work on your own, you know, or create your own art, it's just going to be healing in a way um, to anybody who does it. Of course, I can definitely see that. And tell our listeners where they can pick up your book, uh, The Art of Words, if they're interested in uh, learning how to craft um, the creative lettering that you uh, teach in it. So I think right now Walmart carries it, okay. Amazon has it as well, and then you can go on my website, ValerieMainersArt.com, and I also have copies. And um, if you get it on my website, I sign it, I stick a free print inside, and you get some other little fun art goodies. Oh, that's awesome. That's pretty cool for some yeah. artists that want a little bit of extra something in there. Yeah. Well, thank you, Valerie, again for uh you know, sharing your testimony again, when I read that, when this was given to me to speak with you today, I was just really blown away by it and how you can turn something like that into something just really great with your art. So um, would you mind praying us out today? No, that's totally okay. Um, Dear Jesus, thank you so much um, for allowing me to do this interview. Um, Be with everybody who hears this podcast and hopefully that somebody comes to mind that they want to share it with. Um, Be with us this week. Help us know that we matter, we're enough, and that you're enough. And um, help inspire new ideas in the artists that are hearing this and um, the people who might think they can't do it. Um, Let them know they can. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Charisma Connection, and you've been listening to the interview with Valerie Wieners and her book, The Art of Words, which you can pick up at Amazon, Walmart, and ValerieWienersArt.com. I'm Missy Montgomery, and this has been Charisma Connection. This has been a production of the Charisma Podcast Network. Steve and Joyce Strang are the founders and owners of CPN. Dr. Steve Green is the executive producer of the Charisma Podcast Network. We intend to honor God with every podcast and remain thankful to our advertisers and supporters who make these podcasts possible.